Okay, as our custom, let's stand and we'll read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at 1, verse 1. Chapter 15, verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to, um, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am, I am what I am, and this grace towards me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you among here say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he received Christ, or sorry, that he raised Christ, whom he had, did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are all of men most to be pitied. Pray. Lord, these are uh, profound verses in um, your scriptures. If all we had was this passage, Lord, uh, to go off as Christians, we would at least know what it is to enter into relationship with you. And that is the most important thing that we, we as humans can accomplish, is this, this, this uh, as created beings to be in relationship with the Creator. I pray, God, that wherever we are in this church, whether it's the first time hearing the Gospel, or the hundredth time, or thousandth time hearing the Gospel, that we learn something new about you, and appreciate you more for what you've done for us. So we look forward to our time together. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, today, like I said in the uh, announcements, we're going to have communion. And normally when we do communion, I just read a passage uh, that sort of helps us remember the communion that uh, Christ told us to obey as one of his commands. And then I give a five-minute sort of summary on what the gist of communion is. And I thought I'd do something different today, and that would be to preach a full sermon on basically what communion represents and why we take it. And so that we understand when we come for, before Christ today to take communion that we have a, a fresh understanding of the key points of the gospel message. So that we understand the gospel in a greater detail. And also, as Christians, we are told to share the message with other people. And I, if I were to ask you, like in, a, like in 60 seconds or like in two minutes, could you give the gospel message to somebody without stuttering and wondering what to say? Already you might be thinking, what would I say? <laughs> So my goal for today is to give you the key points of the gospel message, help you understand it, so that you can um, give somebody a, a clear defense for the hope that's within you. And, Jesus, and Paul actually addresses some of the key components in here. So before we dive in more, um, I just want to read uh, 
verses 1 to 2 together so that we get an idea of what was going on in Corinth. And why did Paul feel it necessary to speak to the Corinthians about this, this gospel message, and especially with to, do, to do with the resurrection? I mean, there's a lot of, he puts a huge emphasis from chapter, or verses 12 to 19 on the resurrection. Why, why is he doing this here and now? And we're going to see uh, here in verse 1 that the gospel message is not new to Corinth. This is not the first time they've heard this message from Paul. Look in uh, verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. So we learn here that Paul in the past has been to Corinth. We learn that he has at one time church planted and given these people the gospel, and people have come to salvation. And we know they come to salvation because, and because they've responded favorably to it by the nature that he says, you received it and now which you stand and by which you are saved. So he, he declares these people as Christian people. So it's important to recognize they have genuine faith at this point. But the problem in Corinth at the time that Paul writes this letter is that he's received word from someone else that there's a teaching going on within the church, within some of the congregation, that they believe there's no such thing as the resurrection. So they're Christians, they've, they've received the gospel at some point, but for some reason, at some point in their faith, some of the members have believed that Christ never was raised from the dead in a bodily form. And I'll say that, that's important. The resurrection is in reference to the bodily resurrection, not just the spiritual resurrection, okay? So they're, 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 they're denying the bodily resurrection was a necessary tenet of the Christian faith, and that Jesus wasn't raised. And... Um, for some of the Corinthians to believe this, according to Paul, was absolutely like disastrous. And that's why in verse 12 he says, you know, how do some of you among you there say there's no resurrection of the dead? And then he goes on to substantiate why it's important. Now, it doesn't tell us how the Corinthians came to this belief. How did they, and there's no doubt Paul told them about the resurrection of Christ and that was part of their faith years prior. Why are they now not believing? It is not mentioned in the text, and it's very difficult to know. But uh, there's a professor named Ben Witherington from Kentucky. He uh, was a professor of Dan's, and I've had the privilege of meeting him and sitting in his office uh, once. And we've actually tried to get him on the houseboat. And Dan made a call to see if he could even... I think you want to even get him on the houseboat for, as a, for fun. Um, but anyway, so far, no luck. But Witherington said this, that in, in, that in Greco-Roman culture... In the Greco-Roman culture, which is where Corinth is from, um, paganism did not place a lot of stress on a blessed afterlife. There's a very negative view of the afterlife in Greek and Roman culture. And so religion was only to be practiced for its present benefits, such as health and safety. I mean, that's what all you see it. I mean, people would pray to their idols for what? I want peace now. I want safety now. I want health now. I want God to bless me here now. Uh, I mean, as I say that... Uh, <laughs> Unfortunately, sometimes within a Christian church, we believe this too. But this is a pagan way of thinking, that God is here to just completely privilege your life in the here and now. So they didn't put a lot of weight on the afterlife. And the Greek culture too, and the Roman culture, um, these issues on the afterlife mattered because if you wanted to maintain a certain particular status, social status within your, within your culture, you had to adopt the beliefs of, the, of that day. And it's no different today. If you want to fit in, you believe what the world believes, and you'll guarantee you'll fit in. If you want to stand out and not be part of the world, you'd start preaching truths about Christianity, and you'll get rejected. 
right? We're going to speak about that next week, actually, in John. So here, these guys, as Corinthians, would have had, some of the people would have had certain elite status within society. And if they were, and because there was not a high view of the afterlife and this belief in resurrection in their, in their own views, if they were to adopt this cultural belief, or go against that cultural belief system, then they would lose social status, political favor, and um, would ac lose access to certain elite venues that the Roman, Greco Roman culture would hold. Like maybe they'd lose uh, status with the, with the nice prime seat boxes at the uh, Athens Games or the Olympic Games that they would have there, the Isthmian Games, like whatever. There were certain venues that you'd have been kicked out of. And so they didn't want to rock the boat, and so they were just thought, well, you know, I'm saved, I'm good, I, I, I'm good with Jesus, but I'm not going to um, uh, believe in this resurrection thing. But I mean, even if that's completely wrong, and that's not why it was, it doesn't matter. Because Paul recognized that they didn't believe in the bodily resurrection, and he recognized this was a tragedy to the church. And he wanted to remind the Corinthians with, that without the resurrection, there was no such thing as Christianity. Without the resurrection, there is no such thing as the Christian faith. And Paul used the opportunity to remind them of what the key tenets of, of the gospel were and why the resurrection was so important. Now, if it was good for them to know this, it's really good for us to know this. Because if you've ever asked the question, if you've ever even thought of the question, why is the resurrection necessary for me to be a Christian? If you don't know the answer to this, then that, uh, that question today is the sermon for you. So the first thing that Paul wants them to know is found in verse 3. He wants them to know that Christ died for their sins. And likewise, he wants us to know that he died for our sins. Look at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Notice here, just a plain, simple observation. He didn't die for his own sin. <laughs> He died for our sin. And we discussed the importance of this near the end, but, but for now we'll leave it. But here's the thing, the implication then, the Corinthians had to come to a place, and so do we, or had, so do we, have to come to a place in our lives where we recognize that we have sin in our life. We have to recognize that we're sinners. We have to recognize that. You know, that's the implication. If we believe that Christ died for our sins, and it's not for His, we have to believe that He died for us. That means we must have sin in our life that He died for. Now, as I was talking to Blake this week. It was really good timing. Uh, we were talking about what is sin, and Romans 3.23 gives a really good answer. Romans 3.23 says this, Sin is when you fall short of the glory of God. When you fall short of God's glory. So here's what's interesting. While we're all people made in the image of God, none of us actually come close to the glory of God. See the distinction? All of us are made in God's image, but none of us fulfill God's glory or make, make, even come close to His glory. So the first step in understanding the, um, uh, the gospel message then is that Christ died for us because we failed over and over to meet the glory of God. So Christ died not only just on our behalf, but he died in our place. Right? He died for our sins. Now I think there's a difference between saying too that he died for, on our behalf versus dying um, by taking our place. I'll give you an example. If, if uh, Janice needs groceries and she's running short on milk and she says, can you go get milk? I'll say, okay, I'll go get milk and I go on behalf of her to get milk. But I'm not going in the place of her to get milk in that I'm not experiencing the same emotions. 
I'm not, I might take a different path, I might take a different route, I might uh, walk different aisles, I might go to a different store. So I'm, I'm getting the milk, that's all I'm getting, but I'm not experiencing anything else. <coughs> Jesus says, or Paul says here, that he died for our sins. In other words, he took our place. He actually took the steps that we should have received. That's important detail to notice. So what does that mean? He's a substitute. He's a substitute. So whenever you look at the cross, and if you watch the Passion of the Christ or anything, just pretend, or just remind yourself that you're up there. You're the one getting flogged 39 times. You're the one getting the nails through your hands. You're the one getting the nails through your feet. And you're the one on the cross. He took your place. He took my place. It's a substitutionary death. The second thing that Paul wants the Corinthians to know, and he wants us to know, is that he was buried. Look at verse 4. Um, and that he was buried. <laughs> Pretty simple. He was buried. Why state this? Well, he wanted the Corinthians to understand that Jesus had a real death. It was a real death. Okay, so you don't bury someone that's in a coma. You don't bury someone that's in a trance or kind of in and out of consciousness. You bury people at a proper funeral for people who are dead. So this is, the point of this is that Jesus had no longer any life in him. And I think this is why the detail of the Roman spearing in Jesus' side is so important in the Gospels. You see, remember in the Jewish culture, the Sabbath... You had to, you couldn't, it would be unclean to have people on the cross during the Sabbath. Sabbath starts around 6 o'clock at night. He was crucified Friday morning at 9 a.m. He died at 3. He lasted 6 hours. Why did they break the legs of the men? Because crucifixion would last days. You could hang on the cross for 2, 3, 4, 5 days and eventually suffocate to death. These men, who were in good health, were crucified at 9. They wouldn't be dead by 6 o'clock. So they had to break the legs of the men because if they break the legs, they can't bear themselves up on the cross. There's nothing to lift themselves up to get oxygen in lungs, and so they die. They suffocate to death immediately. So they go up to Jesus. They didn't break his legs because he was so weak from all the flogging. And uh, they, he says it's finished. He dies around 3 p.m. And what does the Romans do? To make sure that he's dead, they spear him and no blood comes out. Water comes out. Water comes out of his side. It's a detail in the scriptures just to show you that he was dead on the cross. So when he goes to the grave and he's buried, it's a real death. These details in scripture are not by chance. <laughs> Those of us who know the word of God well know that they're, they're there for a purpose. So that's the second thing you want to know, that he was buried. And we're going to talk about the significance of his burial later on here. Or why he, why he had to die. The third thing, though, is that he was raised from the dead. We see this in the second half of 4b. It says he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This, of course, is a reference to the resurrection. Being raised from the dead physically is to be raised bodily and to be raised as a resurrection. But why mention according to the scriptures? Why mention that? Well, the Old Testament spoke of the, a suffering Jesus, but the Old Testament also spoke of a resurrecting Jesus. And while Paul doesn't tell us what scriptures he taught the Corinthians that he wants them to put their minds back to in terms of reminding them, I wonder if he had Isaiah 53 in mind. Isaiah 53, the whole thing is about Jesus as a suffering Messiah. And Psalm 16.10 talks about the resurrection. It says, he says in Psalm 16.10, You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Right? If you're in the grave, you decay. He says, I will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. It's a prophecy about Jesus not uh, being uh, stuck in the grave and decaying. 
He was, he was holy. He couldn't stay in the grave. So Paul, who had been their primary teacher and spiritual leader, had them turn back to the authority of God's word as a way of changing their view about the resurrection. That's important, eh? Whenever we get into debates in the Christian circles, when we have, well, I think this because so-and-so said that, or I think this because science believes this, or whatever we have our, our arguments, Paul says, listen, I don't care what your culture teaches. I don't care what you, where, how things have shifted in your mindset. I'm turning you back to the scriptures as a, as a reliable source that you can believe what I'm saying about Jesus is true. That's all, and then if you stop there, that would be enough for them to be able to say, okay, we change our mind about the resurrection because the word of God is trustworthy enough to believe this. Didn't Jesus do that also in Luke? Remember the road to Emmaus? He's been crucified, he's been resurrected. And uh, there's these men walking down the road and they're just devastated. And it actually says that they look sad. They look sad and then Jesus appears to them and says, what's going on, boys? And they say, well, well haven't you, where you been, man? Like, haven't you been around here? Don't you know what happened? He goes, tell me about what happened. And he says, well, there's this guy named Jesus who we believed in the Messiah, and he was crucified, and we were hoping that he was going to redeem Israel. And uh, Jesus says, oh, man, like that's, you know, interesting. Tell me more, right? So we get in these conversations. Verse 25, this is what Jesus says. And then he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into glory, which is a reference to resurrection, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. He went back to Moses, walked through all the scriptures to the prophets, and then he said, those are, those are the two things that tell you that you should have known that I was to suffer and be resurrected. That's very interesting. And is what Paul did with the Corinthians? Just copying Jesus. I'm going to do what Jesus did in the road to Emmaus. I'm going to remind you to go back to the scriptures to look at this. And I would love to have been there. Imagine how much you would have learned about the Old Testament Bible. How he, could you imagine like hearing him speak for a long time, maybe a couple hours, uh, about walking through from Moses to prophets and putting it all together and systematically to make you understand how the whole thing was talking about him? That would have been the... You couldn't have paid a four-year seminary degree and get as much out of that as you would in two, two hours of Christ. It would have been amazing. So Paul says, though, just in case these scriptures are not enough, I want to turn your attention to one more thing, Corinth. I want you to think about the eyewitnesses that actually saw Jesus resurrected as well, bodily. Look at this in uh, verse uh, 5 to 11. He says, remember, boys, he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, as to the, the untimely born, he appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And this grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me, whether then it was, or I, or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Why the eyewitness list is so important, I think, to a substantiating Jesus' resurrection is really found in verse 6. He says, After that he appeared to more than 500 men, here's the key, most of whom remain until now. 
What does he mean by that? These men are still alive. They're still alive. So listen, Corinthians, if you're doubting, if you're not even going to rely on the Word of God, you can go and talk to these men, and they will tell you what they saw. Right? When you go to a court, and you're judging a case, or the police are taking a report of a car accident, and there's two or three witnesses gathering, they're saying, your eyewitness is credible for me to make a case. Paul's saying, um, by the way, look at all the people he appeared to, and these people are still alive. The majority of them are still alive. If you don't believe me, don't believe the Word of God, go talk to them, and you'll find out. Now, granted, they were in Corinth, and these guys were mostly in Jerusalem, but it would still be easy to access these people in terms of getting credible information. A letter can go a long way, for example. However, I find it interesting that Paul still says, go to these eyewitnesses as a secondary source to believe in the bodily resurrection. Now, it's hard to know at this point when these Corinthians heard this letter being read out aloud in church, whether they began to change their views. You know, they were convicted by the fact that they should look at the Word of God to get their clear understanding, or whether they thought, oh man, like, yeah, we, I know some of these uh, witnesses, or I should talk to these witnesses, and yeah, that's enough for me to change my thinking in resurrection. We don't know where they were at. Some may have changed at that point, some may, some may, not, may not have. But regardless, Paul began to give them the theological implications for, um, and, the, and the necessities for believing in the resurrection if they hadn't changed at this point. See, it was necessary for Jesus to be raised, and the implications were massive. And we'll look at this in verse 12 onward. He says, If Christ is preached, and that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection? If there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is also in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. And if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sin. And those also uh, who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are all of men most to be pitied. There's a lot, a lot in there, but I want to pick on really two major themes within these two verses. And that's one found in four, verse 14 and one found in verse 17. Verse 17. Jesus, Paul says this, If there's no resurrection, there's no such thing as Christianity. You see it? Look at verse 14. Um, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. It's in vain. Look at verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. No resurrection, you have a worthless faith. No resurrection, you have a, a, a faith that's in vain. So the question we need to answer as a church is why would our faith be in vain, and why would it be worthless without the bodily resurrection of Christ? And I'll give you two reasons. I'll give you two reasons. First, we would have to pay the penalty for our own sin if there was no resurrection. When you stood before God on Judgment Day, the sin would be attached to your back with no substitute. You'd be judged according to the way you've lived in relationship to God. So the first again reason is, uh, you would have to pay the penalty for your own sin if there was no resurrection. Verse 17 says that. Look, you are still in your sins. Um, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. The sins attached to your back. 
We have to understand the nature of Jesus in comparison to ours to understand why the resurrection is central. Right? Turn with me quickly to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. I want to contrast uh, Jesus to us in terms of uh, his nature. Romans 5, verse 12. So just go backwards one book before 1 Corinthians is Romans. Chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Here's the key. Why do we die? You ever ask that question? Anybody ever ask you that question? Like, why do we all die? Here's why. Death spread to all men because all are sinners. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. For the wages of sin is death. We die because we're sinners. In other words... If there was no sin in our lives, we wouldn't die. Sin is, a death is a direct correlation to the fact that we have sin. We've all missed the mark. We've all fallen short of God's glory. We've all failed to live up to God's moral standard. And sometimes people have a hard time understanding what sin is. So let me help you understand what sin is, if I can do so. Jesus um, once said to a fellow... What is the greatest commandment? And he said, you are to love God with your whole heart, mind and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And all the law can be summed up in loving God with your whole heart and loving your neighbor. Here's a question to anybody who thinks, if we get into an argument about whether someone sinned by saying, well, have you done this, done that, it probably may not go so well. But a really fast way into uncovering people's sin is to say, do you think in your life that you've loved God perfectly? Or do you think that you, you have, in terms of how you've related to other people, whether it be your family, your friends, your co-workers, your children, have you loved them absolutely perfectly? If the answer is no, you're guilty of sin. <laughs> you're guilty of sin if you've never loved God perfectly and never loved your neighbor perfectly. And I don't think anyone in the world would have the courage to admit that they've done that perfectly. They might think they've done pretty good, but I don't think anyone has the courage to claim that they've done it perfectly. So the key then, if we've all broken that commandment, and that's what, how sin can be defined, then only reason one physically dies then and stays in the grave is because they have sin. Here's the key. If G so we don't resurrect. We don't bodily race in the grave because we have sin, so we stay in the grave. The implication is this. If Jesus doesn't resurrect from the grave, guess what he's guilty of? Sin. If Jesus doesn't raise from the grave, he's guilty of sin because death's the penalty for sin. But if you have no sin in your life, you can't die. You can't die. So here's the thing. He died, but not for his sin, for ours. God was the one that had to inflict the, his punishment. So when he goes to the grave, God looks at him and goes, but you didn't do anything wrong. Get out of the grave. And God, Jesus goes, I'm out. I don't have to die. I did never sin. I can't, death can't be part of my life. And this is important. This is really important. Like, like I drew these out because I'm visual and some of you are too. But this is, this is a, these are from up here actually. You can hold this for me. This is my van up. You hold this one. You, you're probably more like Jesus. Yes. Okay. 
Okay. <laughs> uh, this is all of us. So sin, sin means you die. Your only choice is to go to the grave. If you sin, you die, you go to the grave. And you're buried. And you stay there. Physically. Jesus, there's a little bit of that maybe. Jesus has said no sin, therefore he has no death in his life. Or so he can't be he can't be guilty of death, and so therefore the only choice is to resurrect. Only choice is to resurrect. I'll just, well, I'll get you to come up in a second again. <laughs> right? So visual, it's pretty clear, but that's what's happening here. So imagine this. Imagine this. If we stood before God on our own merits, and we're all guilty of not loving God, loving your neighbor properly, when we stand there, he'd look at us and go, I'm going to tell you about all the sins in your life, and they're all attached to your back. Because the judgment is basically placed upon you because you've never reached my perfect standard for love. Right? But if we're attached to Jesus Christ, then we are allowed to stand in his presence. And it's a very important verse in 2 Corinthians 5.21. This may make more sense to you now and have more power. He says, He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, that we may become the righteousness of God. How do we become righteous? It's not because of our own merits. It's through, it's through our faith. It's through our faith, and we're going to get into that in a second. The second point, then, is this. This is why the resurrection is important. Bodily, bodily resurrection is important for Jesus. If he, didn't, if he didn't raise, we would not get to go to heaven. We'd get, would there be no option for us but to be sent to hell? We'd spend no eternity with God. Our eternal life in the spiritual realm with God is completely dependent on the resurrection. Completely dependent on the resurrection. And I'll get to you so you can come up again. And I'll show you an absolute, I think a powerful illustration. At least I hope it is. To uh, understand this. So, so watch this. If I stand before God and, I'm, and I die and I go to the grave. When, I, when, I, when, the, res, when the end times comes and, I, and uh, God calls us all to judgment, I will stand there with my sin attached to my back and I will have to pay for this. Because Jesus raised, got resurrected from the grave, here's what happens. When, when we stand before God, at the calling of our names to come to heaven, I, I grab on to Jesus' coattails, literally. I grab on to him, and when he raises to the heaven, I go with him. It's like, it's like a rocket ship when you light it on the ground, it just goes up. The only reason I get to heaven is because we're attached. That's the only reason. It's not because of me. It's because of everything he's done is dying in my place. And so without the resurrection, if he doesn't go up, I can't go up. I think I can't go up the stairs. There's nowhere to go. So I, I literally am dependent on Jesus Christ to get me into heaven. No bodily resurrection, we stay in the grave. Both physically and spiritually. Well, spiritually, we, well, never mind, we won't get into that. That's probably for discussion, but, yeah, we're, we're toast. We're toast, okay? And that's the whole thing. We, we grab onto Jesus' coattails, and we get into heaven through that way. And Ephesians 2, 4, 9 speaks profoundly to this. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he had loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that one may boast. 
you know, like the thing is like, there's a way, like you don't, we don't all automatically have osmosis. Like I don't grab onto Jesus' coattails with, by osmosis. Like he doesn't just pull me up there with, just because he loves, loves the world. There's a step in which we all have to do to go from being dead in our sins, judge, being judged on our own, to actually being able to resurrect with them. And I don't know if you see it here, but it's in the last verse. By grace you have been saved through faith. We have to exercise faith to believe that he died for us in our place. And I want to show you so actually the gospel message here. If you want to know what it is to be a Christian, what it is to be saved, how, what it is to go to heaven, what it is to be eternally secure and know that you're going there, what it is to not fear this world and fear death and all these types of things, you have to do these, I think, four things. A, you have to admit you have sin in your life. You've got to admit it. You haven't reached God's standard of love in either the way you treat God or the way you treat other people. You haven't done it. You also, also have to admit that sin needs punishing. You have to admit it. Listen, as a, I had this conversation in the gym about uh, six months ago, and it's just fascinating. This woman, she, we were talking about, she said, God is love, and I said, I agree. And she says, because God is love, there's nothing we can do that, he, that will make us reject Him or make Him reject us. He's like, because if God is love, it doesn't matter how we live, He will not reject us. And I said, it's actually the opposite. It's because He's love that He's dealt with the things that we've done wrong. I said, and I said, there's no way you can be loving and not desire justice. She wanted a God that loved without justice. Love and justice are compatible. They're not incompatible. Think about it. When anyone's ever hurt you, ever, what is the first thing you demand? Justice. Justice, because you know intrinsically in your head that love requires punishment. You want it to be carried out. Why do you become unforgiving and bitter? Because you, you deserve to be loved a certain way, but you're not getting it. So you're going to punish them because no one else is doing it for them. So you're going to teach them a lesson and, how, and you're going to make them pay. So as a loving, as someone who expects love, you demand punishment when you're not loved. I mean, it's just common sense. So why would God who created us in our image be any different? Why would a loving God allow us to morally live as however we want it? I mean, look at the, we are, and look at the chaos in the world. Just watch the news, look at you, within your families, look, look at your friendships, and you can see the disaster of everyone going their own way morally. It's, just, it's, ever, it's everywhere. So God says, uh, part of love is to punish, because you demand it as a human being, so so do I. I, de I demand it as a creator. So we have to admit that we're sinners. We have to admit that what we've done would require punishment. And then we have to admit then that Jesus was the substitution necessary to cover our sin. Because he never sinned. So when he died, he dies as a substitute. He died to take our place. Not just didn't die on our behalf. He died in our place. We were supposed to be on the cross and we, we are not because of what he did. There's a substitutionary death and that is why we have the right to even know who God is. Someone holy and sinless died in our place. He's not dying for our, his own sins. He's dying for ours. We have to admit that. And then we have to admit then that we can't do anything in our lives to earn God's favor. If, if, if we've all sinned, then therefore, what do we have to offer God? Absolutely jack squat. The only thing we can offer him is a cry out. As I cry out to him to say, save me, like be merciful to me. 
And so we admit that we have to come to faith, through our faith in him, that what he did, who, who he is, what he did, why he did it, all those things, we admit those things, and then we, through faith, um, come to know him. And that requires, of course, confession. If you admit you're a sinner and you admit it needs punishment, you might as well, you better tell God what you've done wrong. <laughs> might as well tell him. He wants to hear it. Just like when you're hurt, the, the best, you, you know it's not legitimate when someone says to you, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, he keeps doing it. You know they're sorry when they, when they can acknowledge the aspects of how they hurt you and why they hurt you. And then when, what is, what is uh, evidence of uh, forgiveness being given? Is, or um, restoration being given is when they, they change their behavior as a love expression to you. Right? They say their story and then there's a change in their behavior. Same for us. Whatever we admitted to him in our sin, whatever we need to be punished, there's now a change in our behavior as a love expression to him for what he did. So if we're known for unforgiveness, we become forgiving. If we're known for being a drunk, we stop drinking. If we're known for sexual morality, we become sexually moral. If we're known for lying, we stop lying. And it's not because we're forced to, but because we understand that he loves us to this degree. Those are the aspects of the gospel message that we have to be able to say with confidence and clarity to people when they ask. The body of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is foundational to Christian faith for those two reasons. And I want to leave you with one final thought. You know, uh, for 2,000 years, people have tried over and over to disprove Christianity. I mean, you just go on YouTube, you go and talk to people in the street, talk to people at work, talk to your only family members. They're, they, they're very few people want anything to do with or believe anything about Christianity. It's a bunch of bogus. You know all that would have happened to disprove Christianity? The whole faith would have been done in, in, in days if one thing happened. They found the body and bones of Jesus Christ. If they found Jesus Christ, his physical flesh, his physical bones, if they could find him, Christianity is absolutely over. I don't know if you've ever thought about Christianity like that before. Have you? I don't know. Like, do you, I mean, if someone came to you before today's sermon and said to you, guess what, Genesis tells I came to you. You hear the news last week? What? They found the, they found the body of Jesus. Like, it, 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 they found a skeleton like, uh, in this grave. And you're like, if you were like, cool, wrong answer. <laughs> or if you were indifferent, that's not good either, right? You should be, you, I mean, you'd, uh, you should be crushed. If, you, if someone said they found the body of Jesus, they found a skeleton, you should be absolutely horrified and scared to hell. Because you're done. That means that when you die and go to the grave, you stand before God and you will pay the penalty for your own sin. That's, that's how drastic it is. I'm not, like, this is no sugarcoating. If they find the body of Jesus, we're done. And here's the great news. They never found his body. Why do you think the Pharisees were so irate? They had like they had they discouraged through the like they were trying to find all sorts of ways and even paid the Roman soldiers, I believe, to be quiet and make up stories. Like they were frantic to find the body. I don't know if you guys have seen the movie lately. What's it called? Um, have you guys seen the movie that came out about two years ago? Risen. Risen? Have you seen Risen? Fantastic movie. This Roman soldier was part of the crucifixion. And he wants to he wants to find the body of Jesus to make it prove it wrong, and he, and uh, he starts following the, the disciples around, and he ends up becoming a Christian through the process. I mean, it's it's a great it's not true, but it's it's a it's a beautiful uh, illustration of how much the resurrection means. 
If you haven't seen Resin, I highly recommend it. It's fantastic. But anyway, um, I mean, yeah, so I, I just want to like press in your heart that if you haven't understood the resurrection to this degree, please understand that the bodily resurrection is foundational to your faith. Paul says, if he's not bodily raised, your faith is worthless. And if he's not bodily raised, your faith is in vain. So I really pray that you understand Christianity in a whole different light than you ever had before after today's message because it is everything to the gospel. And I've repeated myself about a hundred times, but repetition is key. I'll give, you the, I'll give you three more lessons, which, like I said, lesson two. Without the body and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our sins would never be forgiven. Right? Verse three. Verse 3, Christ died for our sins. He wasn't raised from the dead. That means he's a sinner. And there's no penalty. There's no, there's no um, payment for sin. We have to pay it ourselves. Lesson 3, without Jesus' bodily resurrection, we could never enter heaven. You can't get to glory on your own merit. You have to grab on. To, Jesus offers his hand out to you and says, I have a message of hope. It's called believe and I died for your sins. And I died for you as a substitute. You believe this and you reach out with your hand and you grab his hand. And you go to heaven because of him. And the final lesson is uh, without the bodily resurrection of Christ, there's no such thing as Christianity. It doesn't exist. 